Hi, I'm Patty Smith. This is Bert Newton. Hey, this is Karen. Oh, I'm Sam from Interpol. I'm Carlos from Interpol. This is Martha Wainwright. Alex from the Orb. And you're listening to a Triple R archive on rrr.org.au. <laughs> My next guests have joined me in the studio to talk about an independent theatre production called Demons on uh, over in Footscray at the Bluestone Church Art Space. We're joined in the studio by actor Don Bridges and director Natasha Broadstock. Welcome to you both. Thank, Thank you, very, you much. very much. So, um, look, uh, Natasha, we'll start with you. Tell us a little bit more about Demons. Oh, Demons is an interesting place, uh, Richard. It's quite intriguing, very, very dark. So it's set in a psychiatric hospital and it follows four people, four very, very troubled people who've got very dark pasts and a lot to deal with, but um, only two of them are patients. The psychiatrist and CEO of the hospital, Dr Osman, played by the wonderful Mr Bridges here, and the nurse, Gabriel, are just as troubled as the patients, all dealing with their inner demons. I think possibly more. (laughs) Very possibly more, Don, yes. So everybody <laughs> dealing with their own demons. And it's a bit of a trope, isn't it, that the, uh, the, the, the person in charge of an asylum or a hospital or something in any kind of drama is often the equally damaged the or dangerous... The most messed-up person around, yeah. yeah. I mean, Which you do very well, Don. Yeah, Wentworth. Yeah. I mean, you know, Pamela Rabe's character in Wentworth is, is probably the most messed-up person in the entire prison. One flew over the cuckoo's nest, another example. Exactly. So it, it's very yeah. much a trope. So. Oh, we well, have our very own nurse ratchet in this play. Yeah. Yes. So, um, Don, talk to us a little bit about your role of uh, as, as Dr. Osmond, who sound, the name sounds innocuous and quite possibly all teeth and hair. I, I think, well, I th- think his real name is Donny Osmond, but, you know, that that's just my little joke. Or maybe Marie, I'm not sure. Um, <laughs> it's, uh, he's, he's a man who loves the power of, um, of being in charge in the in the hospital but he also has quite a um a troubled past with um his family uh one of the patients may be related to him in fact we but you know we'll figure that out as the show goes on yeah he's not he's not the uh not the sweetest man in the world really he's got rather um disturbing traits but there is a veneer of middle class respectability just a little yeah. thin veneer. <laughs> just enough. But it just may or may not be starting to crack. And, Natasha, as a director, what is it about this play that appeals to you? Ah, oh, I'm drawn to the dark side. I love the dark side when it comes to theatre. So when the director, uh, when the writer, Amadeo Astorino, who's a local playwright, offered me the script and I had a read, and I thought, OK, so this is very, very dark. And it's very intriguing. It's also very funny in places. It may be the sort of humour that makes you wince, but the humour is is very much out there. And also the idea behind it, Amadeo told me he was inspired to write it when he was thinking, what might have happened to Blanche Dubois at the end of Streetcar? This refined woman ends up in an asylum. What would it be like for her being in there? So our central character, Lilith, is, is not Blanche, but she has elements of Blanche about her. So she's sort of recreating this classic 20th century character in a, a modern setting. And we're seeing elements of Blanche's fragility and her, yeah, her troubled nature. I'm intrigued. Now, uh, Don, you've been working in the Australian theatre scene for several decades. Uh, Forever. Uh, yes, several. Uh, it's about 
four in Melbourne and uh, and one previous before in, in Sydney that. as well. Because um, a little bit in Sydney. Yeah, because yeah. I mean, looking at your your bio, you've worked um, at the Nimrod, for example. Yeah, kind of back yeah. in the day. Yeah. So you you will have seen a lot of ebbs and flow and changes in the Australian theatre scene over that. A lot of changes, and I think possibly the one that I find most troubling is that um, in in the day. Um, I worked a lot at Melbourne Theatre Company and it was pretty much an ensemble company in those days. And it's I always find it fascinating now when you see companies saying what we need to get back to or what we really would love to do is have an ensemble. They were there and, you know, through funding cuts and, you know, the, the way um, money was pulled away from the arts one of the things that we lost was that ensemble company feel. And I was at MTC recently talking to the head of wardrobe there and um, he said, I can't believe that in this year of the 400th anniversary of Shakespeare, Melbourne Theatre Company is not doing a single Shakespeare. There's a company in Azerbaijan doing four. And it is, it's troubling that because they're big shows... And it's the reason, I think, that certainly, well, not necessarily the reason why MTC have chosen not to do Shakespeare this year. Perhaps they just went, well, everybody else is going to be doing Shakespeare. Let's have a point of difference. But the sheer fact that a big cast now, for even for a main stage show, is often six or eight yeah. actors as opposed to 12 or 15 or 20. Or 30, as we, <laughs> as we used to have with some of the shows back, you know, in the, in the 80s. It is disheartening that things have shrunk so much and certainly then for independent theatre makers, for directors and writers, the challenge then is, okay, you may be able to afford a cast of four, perhaps five at most people. How do you make a small cast dynamic? How do you make it work? And how do you stop people getting tired of seeing... Endless new Australian plays, which only have four four characters and four actors. Mm-hmm. It's a tricky one, but you have to make a virtue out of it. Like Demons only has four characters in it, but um, there there are little twists. Um, there are quite some dreamlike kind of weird sections where you may or may not see um, other sides, other sides of characters. Um, oh, can I just mention the play on the words as well? Demons, D E M E N S, as in demens, dementia. Demons, dementia. Just wanted to get that out there. Sure. <laughs> in terms then of the the cast that you're working with, the other three actors, tell us a little bit about them, Don. Um, Louise, Philip and Jai are just wonderful, lovely people to work with. Uh, they're all really playful actors and um, I think we've found some really fun things and some really dark things as well. And uh, none of us are... Uh, precious about, um, you know, trying stuff out and failing. I think that's that's a, a, one of the great things that you have to be able to do in a rehearsal is try things and fall flat on your ass and, you know, mm-hmm. get up and go, OK, that didn't work, let's try this. Mm-hmm. Now, over the years you've also worked as a teacher, I believe, like a teacher of drama and, 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 and actors as well. So I... I'm curious to know, do you still find yourself learning from, say, if you're working with a group of young actors you've not worked with before, they may be going, he is the elder, we will learn from him. But are the tables reversed? I remember doing a play once, uh, it was some years ago, and younger actors were coming up and saying to me, how do I I make this 
line work. It's it's a funny line, I know, but how do I make it work? And I I, I just deferred to one of the young men in the company who was doing his first show out of drama school, but it was Bert Labonte, and he was <laughs> astounding. And, you know, there's always great stuff you can learn from anybody. Mm-hmm. Anybody. The, the four actors in the cast have been bouncing off each other so beautifully. They all come from very, very different backgrounds, and it's very much a matter of us all working together, the five of us, me and them. And, of course, the sound design is playing a big element of the, in this show as well. We have an amazing soundscape designed by Lyndon Blakey, which is adding so much to atmosphere and to characters as well, I think. Yeah. Is, oh, yeah. Is there a, dam- uh, uh, a risk, though, that as a director you might over-rely on that soundscape to create mood and tension and emotion as opposed to letting the actors generate that or you doing that through the direction? Yeah, I hear what you're saying, but we've very much con- uh, concentrated on the actors and the characters first and then brought in sound. I've been talking to Lyndon constantly through the, pro- through the rehearsal process and we're bringing it in to punctuate rather than create as such. But it does add a rather lovely element. It does, yeah. yeah. And we've actually found some live elements with the sound as well, just little little things that we do, um, little sound effects that we make from within the show as well. Yes. Make in character or, or make yeah. from the wings? or No, 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 in character. Yes. Don does a rather stage. sinister tapping sound. I won't let you know what is tapping just yet because you have to wait and see. Hopefully it's it's not someone's teeth or... or Uh, No, it's uh, slightly worse than that. (laughs) And then, of course, I had the joy of discovering that Don can sing and play the guitar, so, of course, that had to get worked in there too. (laughs) The production that we're discussing is Demons on at the Bluestone Church Art Space in Footscray. Uh, It is opening tonight um, and running through until the 24th of July uh, uh, at 8pm with some matinees to p.m. on the weekends, I'm assuming. Um, now, the venue itself seems like a... Uh, given that it's an, a, blue, a former blues... Well, a former church. It's, I was going to say a former Bluestone church. No, it still is Bluestone. That part hasn't changed. It <laughs> seems like it is also an appropriately atmospheric space in which to present this play. Mm-hmm. I'd never been into the space before. It is an amazing space. It's just... I don't know. It's got great acoustics. It has... Um, there's something about the actual space that that is quite thrilling to work in. Mm -hmm. And it's very, very high ceilings and a beautiful rose window at one end as well. And, uh, yes, we're using using it a different way around to usually. We're facing the entrance, uh, which has some rather interesting curved spaces, some curved buildings, like one one bit's got the the loo's in, one's got the kitchen in, and that's our backdrop. So it actually gives a quite nice sort of closed asylum sort of feel to it. Mm. So one of our characters, the Manic Allen, played by the effervescent Jai Luke, can literally bounce off the walls because there are walls just there for him to bounce off. <laughs> and, look, as a, as a final question for you both, how important is it to be able to stage new Australian drama at a time when so many of our main stages, for example, are given over to works from the, the US and the UK? Yeah, oh, it's essential. Absolutely. Um, it, if I think back to those days in the 80s, the, the major companies were, were doing... Um, the classical works, and then there was the next tier down um, that were doing new Australian works, and then below that there was another tier, and they were all funded. There was something like 20 theatres in Melbourne, theatre companies in Melbourne that were fully funded, and, uh, you know, there was a lot of theatre being done, and some of the great writing of that that period came from... um, there being a place where people could get work on. 
and I, you know that's essential for writers. The production is called Demons on at the Bluestone Church Art Space in Footscray from today through until the 24th of July. Uh, if you would like some more information, you can book by going to www.trybooking.com forward slash 206578. Um, I'll give that again, www.trybooking.com forward slash 206578. Or you could just do that annoying Melbourne thing and not book and just turn up. Uh, and meanwhile, the <laughs> cast and the director and everyone else associated will be freaking out, going, we've only got five bookings tonight. No Are one's we going to do the show? Will we do the show? There's, a, there's four of us. There's five of them. Will we do it? Yeah. yeah the audience outnumbers the cast. We do the show. <laughs> so uh, do get along, if you can, to see the new Australian play, Demons, on from tonight until the 24th of July, Bluestone Church Arts Space Footscray. We've been talking to director Natasha Broadstock and actor Don Bridges. Thank you both very much for joining us here Thank at Triple R. Thank you so much, Richard. Thank you very much. Hi, I'm Patty Smith. This is Bert Newton. Hey, this is Karen. Oh, I'm Sam from Minipal. I'm Carlos from Minipal. This is Martha Wainwright. Alex from the Orb. And you're listening to a Triple R archive on rrr.org.au. <laughs> Joining me on the line from Sydney is my next guest, uh, the Artistic Director of Playwriting Australia, Tim Roseman. Tim, good morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me. My very great pleasure. Now, uh, you've, uh, we've chatted on this show once or twice in the past uh, mm-hmm. about the National Play Festival, which, yeah. as its name suggests, is an annual event focusing on n- new Australian theatre, uh, specifically play scripts and their development. Uh, yeah. It's coming to Melbourne this year, which I'm excited about because it means I can actually go. As can hopefully lots of your listeners. Yes, exactly. So why have a national play festival? Don't plays just magically create themselves with the playwrights sitting away, tapping away at their keyboard in a garret somewhere? It's pretty much exactly how it happens, uh, except that, you know, you just wake up and there it is done. It's, 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 pure, it's pure alchemy. No, no, wonder they, no wonder people talk about the magic of theatre. Yeah, for sure. It's really interesting. I often talk about um, Paul McCartney, who woke up one morning, apparently, with the lyric and tune for yesterday in his head and wrote it down on a notepad that he kept by his bed. So the urban myth goes. Um, and that song's almost never changed. And I know of no single playwright anywhere on the planet who's ever been able to perform a similar kind of feat. Um, the verb to write, like with a pen, is absent from the word playwright. The play is wrought, it's bent into shape, and it can take a huge amount of wrangling and um, road testing and stretching and pummeling to turn it into the kind of um, uh, meaty, vibrant, invigorating thing that you want to see at the theatre. Um, it's, it's often, it, it's often a, a case that we sort of rely on alchemy, I think, in, in Australian theatre and, you know, chance getting a play there. But what the Play Festival tries to do and what we try to do uh, more broadly at Playwriting Australia is to give those great voices of our time, the playwrights, the, the greatest theatrical thinkers who I think we have, um, the space and the time to get inside the world of the play, to use the resource of actors and audiences and great directors and dramaturgs to, to really um, interrogate what a play's about, to explore its possibilities, to get it blissfully right, and occasionally to, to find you know, some stumbling blocks as well, but to, to road test it in front of an audience um, is, is a, an amazing and rare chance for a new play. Now, uh, one of the guests on my show just a, a few minutes ago was the Australian uh, 
uh, uh, the Australian actor, uh, he's struggling uh, to find the name, Don Bridges, mm-hmm. um, who's uh, worked in the industry for over 40 years. And he commented on the fact that, uh, and it's something that I've talked about also with Lee Lewis, the artistic director of Griffin up in, in Sydney, that um, the, the diminished resources of the sector means that instead of uh, seeing a play with a cast of 20 that we might have seen 30 years ago, today more and more we're seeing plays with uh, that are two-handers or, or for four actors or perhaps yeah. five if we're lucky. Yeah. What kind of constraints does that economic reality have on the imagination of playwrights? I think it's a really, really significant um, a kind of long-term problem that we're facing in the Australian theatre scene. And, it, and the, the tragedy of it is that it's economically led rather than artistically led. Uh, we do the stats here at Playwriting Australia every year, and there are two new plays a year in the whole country that have a cast size of eight or more, which is, um, which is sort of breathtakingly saddening when you open any of those play texts from the particularly 50s, 60s, and 70s, you know, and the cast list goes over onto the second page where you were really dealing with a, a robust and sizable argument and I think that often what happens is our plays by by being led economically um, confuse scope and scale so I think that it's very hard to have an epic argument a really huge debate about the state of our nation and about the state of the world if you don't have um, the people on the stage to carry it out you know a two-hander by definition is a binary argument so, so we we, we, we kind of leave ourselves with quite a, a reductive um, theatrical conversation and therefore social conversation. Uh, and, and I think it's, it, it, the knock-on effect of that is that writers have less and less opportunity to stretch those big muscles that they need to have the big arguments. So when those big plays do come along, they may come along once or twice in a writer's career, and then they haven't had those, you know, five, six, seven plays of leading up to it to really make it something, um, you know, canon-worthy, if you, if you want. So we kind of leave behind a legacy of of fascinating and beautiful and uh, well-crafted and intimate and intricate thinking and soulscaping, if you like. But we don't, I think, create those those sort of um, epoch-defining plays anywhere near as easily as we should. Yeah. Now, uh, there's... Let's let's turn this conversation around to to be more optimistic now, and to, mm. to talk about hope and promise, and and the yeah. promise of new plays and new work. Because the the National Play Festival, uh, amongst the other the things that it's doing, yes, there are there's a, a playwrights program, there's workshops and masterclasses and so forth. There's yeah. also play readings of of new works in development. You've got a mm. keynote speech as well. So there's certainly a lot that listeners, even if they're not playwrights themselves, if they're just interested in contemporary Australian drama. There's uh, public aspects of the program for the festival that people can come along to and engage with and watch new works being made almost literally before their eyes. Absolutely. And often, you know, each play reading or nearly all the play readings are done twice. So often, you know, you can see it on the Thursday and come back on the Saturday and it's a different play uh, to, to some extent. You know, writers kind of feverishly beavering away in corridors, tweaking and pummeling again and again. It's um, nearly all of the play festivals is public, so there are uh, a series of readings up to, and um, panels and keynotes. There's four different things on every single day. Some days there's five. Plus there's a, a series of masterclasses for professional playwrights. And this year, for the second year, we're, we're launching something called Playwriting 101. 
can, um, which is uh, a chance for anyone to come and learn from some of our key artists how to write a play. So it's open to the general public. If you've always fancied just having a go, um, come along to a free masterclass from us and we'll, we'll give you some, some secrets of the trade um, and get you to do a bit of writing with us. Um, and two of the areas I want, also wanted to highlight, there's a mm. focus on uh, contemporary works from New Zealand. Yep. Um, so that's uh, Aotearoa now. So yeah. that in itself intrigues me because the, despite the fact that Australia and New Zealand are such close geographic neighbours, the cultural conversation between uh, our two countries, we, we don't often necessarily know what, seem to know what one another are doing creatively. I don't think we go there at all. You know, and, and I think we have the... Um, we have that typical thing of the bigger country not paying as much attention as we should to, to the small country in the same way that uh, the American and British scene pay very little attention to what's happening here in Australia, although increasingly more and more and more Australian playwrights are getting their work overseas, which is hugely inspiring. But in terms of Teora now, we've been working for a number of years with our partner organisation Play Market uh, in in New Zealand, and they're bringing over a variety of um, the three plays by writers of different backgrounds. There's a Maori writer in there. There's a Chinese New Zealand playwright, and there's an Anglo New Zealand playwright. So, so it's really three different slices of of that culture in front of us. And as you would expect, the writing is fresh and inspiring, and um, every bit as juicy as the work that's happening here in Australia. Um, and another stream of the, the program at the 2016 National Play Festival, which is happening uh, from the 27th to the 30th of July at the, the Malthouse, the Cooper's Malthouse, 113 Sturt Street, South Bank. There's also uh, a focus uh, on new Asian-Australian playwriting. Yeah, this is part of a really huge project that we're uh, working on across the Australian theatre industry, which is to try to make a playwriting culture that reflects the Australia that we live in, um, which which sounds sort of fatuous in, when, when you phrase it like that, but when we put the thinking for Lotus together, we looked around for published Australian playtext by Asian Australian playwrights, and we could find less than five of the thousands and thousands of playtexts written, we found published less than five plays. And, um, and that's uh, such a glaring omission. And when you look at why so many of the actors on the Australian stage are white, and you look at why so 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 many of the audience members are white, it's, uh, for me it comes down to the fact that the people who are generating those stories in the first place are all, are all white. Um, last year, 3% of the new plays in Australia that were produced were by non-Anglo playwrights and 4% were by Indigenous playwrights. So there's a massive, massive imbalance when you think that anything between 20 and 30% of Australia would be described as culturally diverse. So we've been working in Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane for a couple of years now, hunting out the most interesting voices that we can find, training them in the basics and now more advanced playwriting craft, bringing in more experienced playwrights and really trying to create a movement of Asian-Australian playwrights so that those stories over time uh, get seen by our audiences and they become a normal thing rather than a, rather than a, um, a novelty. Now, as well as the plays and the workshops and everything else that's going on at the mm. 2016 National Play Festival, uh, you've also uh, programmed a keynote address uh, to be presented by uh, the playwright Michael Gow, entitled mm -hmm. The Agony and the Agony. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, Michael is one of Australia's greatest playwrights. Certainly his 
contribution to our theatre scene over a number of decades is, is formidable and, and almost unequalled as the um, artistic director of Queensland Theatre Company, as a director of opera and theatre, and particularly, of course, as, as a playwright. I think most people, when you ask them what are the greatest Australian plays of all time, will put Michael's play away on that list. And I imagine loads of your listeners have studied it at school or have seen a production, and I know that there's a production that's touring the country at the moment, and I know of a significant production that will be uh, launched next year as well. So there is... Um, there's, there's a huge appetite for Michael's work and his place as one of our theatre visionaries to talk really humanly and intimately about the, the, the place of the playwright in the world and the challenge of creating art. You know, the times are hard, I think, in, in the artistic communities. I'm sure your listeners are, are more than aware and we, we really find ourselves as a community embattled and... Um, uh, I think quite lost and within that artists have to create and have to find an inspiration a, a mechanism of surviving the, the big chill that feels like it's enveloping us as a community and I, I hope Michael's speech will speak to that will speak to a, a notion of the artist in the world. I'm looking forward to hearing what he has to say and I'm looking mm. forward to exploring as much as of the 2016 National Play Festival as I can humanly attend. Well, uh, it's running you can from... totally binge on it. Like you, <laughs> you can absolutely get really high on that stuff. I think I shall be. Uh, it's running from the 27th to the 30th of July at the Cooper's Malthouse, 113 Sturt Street, South Bank. Um, you can get full details about the program at www.nationalplayfestival.org.au uh, and if you'd like to book and get along to any of the festival sessions, the ones that you need to pay for as opposed to the free sessions, uh, bookings at malthousetheatre.com.au We've been talking to Tim Roseman, the Artistic Director of Playwriting Australia, which presents the National Play Festival. Tim, we'll catch you at the Malthouse in a few weeks' time. Thanks so much for your time. Hope to see you soon. Hi, I'm Patty Smith. This is Bert Newton. Hey, this is Karen. Oh, I'm Sam from Minnipore. I'm Carlos from Minnipore. This is Martha Wainwright. Alex from the Orb. And you're listening to a Triple R archive on rrr.org.au. Somehow I suspect my next two guests don't speak Sardinian either, so I can't ask them to translate for me. So instead, we'll just talk... Uh, we'll talk about... Let's see. Let's talk about um, heroism and the military and isolation and honour and intrigue and betrayal and treachery and tragedy. Let's talk Othello. I'm joined in the studio by Peter Evans, uh, the artistic director of Bell Shakespeare, who is also directing this production of Othello, and uh, local actor... Ray Chong Ni, who uh, is playing the title role and is also the face of Bell Shakespeare's mer marketing and merchandising this year. How's it going? Good. How are you, Richard? I'm good, thanks, man. Good to have you in the studio. Peter, good to see you again. Good morning. Thank you. Now, um, let's start, I guess, Peter, with you. Why choose Oth Othello to program this year for Bell? Well, um, a lot of it's got to do with Ray, actually. Um, I think there's kind of three... Shakespeare's that you don't do unless you've got the actors lined up. I, I think you're crazy to program King Lear, Hamlet or Othello if you haven't got the actors in mind. And so Ray was working with the company for our, with our education um, team. He spent a year doing education work with us and as part of that year I directed A Midsummer Night's Dream. 
Um, and Ray played Oberon in that. And then the next year we made it again here in Melbourne um, with a Melbourne cast, and Ray did that um, production too. And as, as you know, as I was watching him play Oberon, I thought, well, Othello's got to. Um, be on the cards pretty soon and so I started thinking about it from there and then Ray and I had a conversation about a year ago and um, it comes together like that now, Ray, I've mainly seen you in independent theatre, um, whether at Red Stitch or Theatre Works or occasionally uh, doing other things at the Malthouse. Um, so <laughs> is it a jump to go from uh, like a oily rag, smell of an oily rag indie theatre production to working with a, a well-resourced company, a better resourced company uh, like Bell? Uh, I guess a jump is the operative word. Um, I guess it, also at the centre of it, it's all about the creation of the work and the process with every production I've always done takes time. And it's no different with this company. As you said, it's just better resourced. Um, but being better resourced doesn't necessarily mean that the creative choices that an independent theatre company makes is worse or better than Bell Shakespeare. Um, but I guess when you uh, have such creative minds within a company like Bell Shakespeare, it means that everyone rises to the occasion and you start to explore um, the the creation of the work with more depth, I guess, because you are allowed time and you are allowed the resources. This, I think time's the point, isn't it, Ray? I think that's the thing whenever I was making independent theatre and occasionally I still make an odd um, little piece with friends. It's actually the consistency of time yeah. where you can actually be together for five weeks and everybody all in the room and you can build an ensemble. I always find that's the hardest thing because you can't sort of guarantee everybody all the time when you're that's making, correct. when you're not paying people. Yeah, in the, in the indie world it's kind of like, right, I can squeeze in a rehearsal between this part-time job and that part-time job and exactly. then someone else disappears because they can't afford a babysitter for their child that night or whatever. Exactly. That's the biggest luxury, I think, yeah. is that you can just sign people up and, you know... But even in main stage world, kind of our Australian rehearsals are perhaps shorter than uh, than uh, internationally. Yes. Um, I interviewed Colin Friels a couple of weeks ago. Um, uh, he'd had what four weeks rehearsal mm. for an MTC show, and he was uh, saying that's not enough. Mm. Kind of, we need more. Mm. What other pressures is a company like Bell working with apart from time? Well, for us, it's cast sizes. What we find is the as the world gets you know m more expensive that we're really fighting to keep our cast sizes that's the that's the tricky bit. This one kind of works. I think Othello can work. We're doing this with nine and Romeo and Juliet we had 11 and I think they can work. I think that's sort of the minimum that you can do. But particularly as a touring company we just find that the world gets more expensive. It just gets more expensive to move around. So the costs go up but not necessarily your revenue. So the other, the other things, you know for me it's about employing actors. You know, the more actors that we can employ during the year the better and I think that's, you know, that's the measure for me as we're always looking for more opportunities to employ more people. Now, let's talk a little bit about the, the plot and the story and the, the themes of Othello, and particularly for people who perhaps haven't seen it before. They may have a vague idea of uh, it's about a, a Moorish captain, uh, there's a, um, a, a, an uncomfortable element in terms of, for modern audiences perhaps, of uh, uh, the misogyny that creeps into into some of the work. And uh, there's uh, our, our hero is... Um, 
kind of betrayed by his brother in arms. So there's kind of different themes and plots and elements going in there. But Ray, talk to us about the plot of Othello and your character uh, in your own words. Sure. Um, A man who has been through many trials and tribulations in his youth uh, finds his way with ambition to become a general in the Venetian army. And in finding himself in, in a high status... Um, he's still considered an outsider, and he's, I guess he still feels that way. Um, he finds love. He finds someone who looks at him and sees uh, his qualities um, that pertain to his mind rather than his features. They elope, and unfortunately that elopement um, casts them out of the society, and they go to Cyprus where there is a war, which is the um, impending event of the show and in cyprus uh they unfortunately um are separated by another person who was also driven through ambition and through that separation uh seeds of jealousy seeds of um anger start to rise and they eventually end with the death of his love <laughs> Shakespeare does love a tragedy. <laughs> yes, he does. Yes, he does. Do you? Yes. Yes. This is an astonishing play. This is remarkable. I mean, this this is one of the great Shakespearean tragedies. And it's great putting on a show that we don't often do. I mean, there's two, there's three kind of central roles with Desdemona, Othello, and then Iago, who would be one of the great villains, is really the, um, the successor to Richard III in terms of great villains that have a relationship with the audience. And it's a remarkably tight, it's um, almost domestic, like you're a Shakespearean tragedy where most of the time there's only two or three people people on stage like it's a very intimate some of the writing is almost naturalistic and it's um in the, in the really small psychological shifts but it's also brutal like it's a really tough um it's 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 kind of um it's a strange godless existence like it's really dark i think it's i think next to king lear it would be the darkest of the shakespeare plays um but remarkable absolutely remarkable we've had such a good time making it and it's fascinating sitting in an audience because one of the things i mean i talked a bit about this with romeo and juliet with you richard but one of the interesting things that shakespeare does is often the tragedies start more like comedies and in a way the 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 start of othello isn't is not that different to midsummer night's dream it's really about lovers wanting to be together and and the father not wanting them to be together um but then as iago goes to work and poisons othello's mind the tone and the colour of the play just changes and all the warmth just drains out of it and it just, you know, suddenly in the audience you've been having quite a good time and then suddenly you just feel the darkness kind of um, um, seeping into it. It's um, it's quite amazing. Now, I've had several conversations over the years with uh, actor Candy Bowers about the lack of opportunity for actors of colour on Australian stages. Right, this is obviously this is um, a good solid role to get your teeth into, and I believe you've referenced Candy as something of a uh, not necessarily mentor or hero, but she certainly is she an influence. She is an influence, definitely. I see the work that she does in terms of promoting people of colour, people of um, culturally and lin- linguistically diverse um, 
uh, th- those actors and, and creative artists. I see the voice that she has with them, um, and it's powerful. It, it ignites something in myself, um, and I do already have this... Um, I already have these machinations in my mind of how I want to further um, those from my community, from the Pacific Islander community, to advance them in the cultural world, if I can. Um, a lot of them, through the demographic, don't have those opportunities. So when I see people like Candy um, actively promoting people of colour, I I do see her as an influence. But I do have to also say that the company, Bell Shakespeare, and under the tenure of... Um, this is Pete's first year as, as artistic director as well. Under the tenure of um, Pete, but John as well, they've actively sought to broaden the horizon of employing actors of colour, actors of different ethnicities. Um, so the voice... Uh, I, I feel very privileged that I could be part of that because not only myself has been employed by them, but Zara Newman and Rosalind, did, and as you like it, mm. which they did. Mm. Um, but also in this cast as well, there's um, a Lao actress by the name of Alice Gelhovong. Mm. I mean, the the pool that Bill Shakespeare tries to employ is wide, um, and so her, Candy Bauer's voice when she talks about it is is great because it highlights the fact that the, st- the stages that we work on, um, they're moving towards that. Yeah. One of the conversations I was part of recently it was uh, 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 an Indigenous actor expressing frustration that um, Indigenous Australian actors and Australian actors of uh, kind of non-Anglo background are often uh, forced to... Uh, they're asked to become educators rather than artists. Um, there's uh, People come to them saying, help me understand, as opposed to going out and asking white people to to understand and I, for me this is a conversation Pete that um, more white theatre makers need to be having it's not a, about me talking to Candy and Ray and, and, and Zara and other actors of colour saying what can we do to change it it's about demanding that white theatre makers white white people in power change the, the conversation as well would you agree? Absolutely yeah we have to <clears throat> our stages have to reflect our community and they haven't. Um, I do think it's getting better. I think I think most of uh, most of my generation, I think, have been working much much harder. But you know, there's no there's no there's no kind of there's not a lot to talk about. You just got to do it. We just got to get more diverse um, diverse casts um, and reflect our community on our stages. Like you know, uh, I do think it's getting better though. I do I do I do think the opportunities are getting more and more. Totally. I mean, also through the Actors at Work program that Bill has, um, you see that uh, myself, I'm um, a graduate of that program, if you want to say that. Um, but in that program, there are many actors who come up from the ranks who have been cast from rural um, mm. Northern Territory mm. and rural Victoria. Mm. So they get those opportunities as well as the urban kids and it means that the pool of ethnicity also is widened. And I think that that, that program in a weird way works like a fourth year of drama school or like a master's program. Is that you do Shakespeare two three, two, three shows a day for a year. At the end of that year we've got eight actors who are pretty match fit. And so in a way we're kind of, it's not the purpose of the education program by any means, but in a way we're building more and more skilled actors coming through and um and that's important that's important i think the drama schools have to take a lot of responsibility for this but um the teaching and and just getting shakespeare in your mouth it just takes time 
Now, um, we're talking about Othello, which is on at Art Centre Melbourne in the Fairfax, uh, uh, opening tonight and running through until the 23rd of July. It's the latest Bell Shakespeare production, and we're speaking with actor Ray Chong Nee and director Peter Evans. Now, one of the things that fascinates me about Shakespeare, it is the 400th anniversary. Lots of people have been doing Shakespeare, uh, but, and lots of people have been doing Shakespeare for many, many centuries and many years. So, um, I mean, there was a production of Othello that uh, Nisha Jelks directed not long ago for State Theatre Company of SA, for example, which was mm. raved about for its kind of uh, feminist interpretation of the Yeah, work. I saw that. That was great. Yeah. Really good. So I, what I wanted to ask is, to what degree do you uh, guys as directors, as performers study other productions or not study them? Do you look at them and do you try to keep, kind of approach it afresh or are you always going to be interpreting it through the lens of other productions and other performances in these roles and in these plays? Um, I, I, I don't go looking for it, but particularly with these such famous plays, you, you end up, by the time you're directing one, and, you know, I'm 44 now, you end up having seen a number over the last 25 years. Um, um, but the thing about Shakespeare is that there's so many ways in which you approach it, and as soon as you cast it, um, that relationship influences the way you do it. So... Um, I I did in South Australia because our friend um, Hazem Shamus was was in that production playing Othello, and it was terrific. I really enjoyed it. It was a very very contemporary kind of Iraq or Afghanistan setting, um, and I enjoyed it a lot. And, and when we go into rehearsals, we in fact talk about the productions we've seen. We've done that a bit, haven't we, Ray? Or, or yeah. ones we've read about, yeah. and you do kind of talk them all through. Um, how much that influences what we put on the stage, I'm not sure. I think it's also um, about... It's it's about history. So when you talk about plays, you look at the history of where it's come from, where it's been played, the people who have mm. filled those shoes, mm. um, and the um, directors who have taken the helm. I mean, the first production that Bell Shakespeare did was approximately 10 years ago with Wayne Blair. Mm-hmm. And that was the first time it had been, had been done in, in Australia <clears throat> um, with Bell Shakespeare. And under that production, there was a heavily Indigenous theme to it because mm-hmm. Wayne Blair's in, Indigenous. Um, and under this production, um, I'm of Pacific Islander descent. So there are things that I do which influences it that comes from that Polynesian background. Mm. Um, so I don't necessarily think that you look at productions and you take on um, ideas uh, that they might have done in those um, instances, but you learn from them in mm. terms of whether you build on um, uh, moment-by-moment experiences that you've learnt or whether you strip it right back and make it contemporary instead of classic yeah, I think that's right. Uh, Richard, our process is also, we, we have a very strong physical process that we go through to build the ensemble that Nigel Poulton works with. So we do 90 minutes of biomechanics every single day and it creates a language in the room and with the ensemble that we build the work from. So in a way, the, the process is, is, um, is incredibly collaborative and each person contributes to how we make it. And so the discussions we have about other productions or, or what people have seen are all part of that, I think. And it goes into the text as well. Pete's very open with the um, the text that we had. Uh, the first day we were brought... Um, by the company a text and for a week we sat around and stripped Mm. what we thought we didn't need and what 
added what we thought we liked. Mm. Um, so in terms of collaboration, it's been a very collaborative process in this this um, production. Mm. Well, I'm looking forward to seeing the outcome tonight, uh, the opening night of Bell Shakespeare's Othello at Art Centre Melbourne, uh, <coughs> running through until the 23rd of July. There's, uh, If you uh, have been listening to Pete and uh, want to know more about his, the way he operates and thinks, there's an in-conversation uh, that uh, you're doing on the 17th of July mm. uh, from 1 till 2pm. That's a free event um, as part of the season in the Fairfax at Art Centre Melbourne. Uh, you can... Book and get more details at artcentermelbourne.com.au and you can also check out uh, bellshakespeare.com.au to see what happens next after the Melbourne season. Uh, if you're streaming us from, say, Albury, Ballarat, Wangaratta, Warrigal, Frankston or Bendigo, <laughs> it's coming to a theatre near you, including uh, the new... Well, it's not that new now. It opened a year ago, but the Alumbra Theatre in Bendigo mm. on the 6th of August. Um, Al- Albury Convention and Performing Arts Centre on the 26th of July, moving around in between. So uh, whether you're in Melbourne or in country Victoria, you'll have a chance to see Bell Shakespeare's Othello. I've been chatting to actor Ray chong and director Peter Evans. Guys, thanks heaps for coming in. Thank you, Richard. Thanks, Richard. Triple R. For complete access to the Triple R archives, which include over 100 interviews, live-to-air performances, documentaries and other Triple R specials, become a subscriber via the link on our website. Thanks for listening to Triple R.